I think it's really time for you right now to head to the Politocrat Daily Podcast online store. There's so much merchandise and more is being added almost daily. Almost daily. You have to go to the following website address. The-Politocrat.MyShopify.com Go right there. Go right now to the-politocrat.myshopify.com Welcome to The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Saturday, February the 20th, 2021. On this episode of The Politocrat. I accept this award in memory of all the African-American actors and actresses who went before me in the difficult years, on whose shoulders I was privileged to stand to see where I might go. Happy birthday, Sidney Poitier. Today is Sidney Poitier's birthday. And you will be hearing much more of the speech you just heard an excerpt of. That speech was Sidney Poitier accepting the honorary Oscar awarded him in 2002 by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The full speech and looking at Sidney Poitier's career and celebrating his birthday, coming up next. years ago when I was in my teens each time I thought of myself as being no less than any man and that my dreams were as valid as I was prepared to make them that was Sidney Poitier in 2001 at the 32nd NAACP Image Awards, a tribute to Sir Sidney Poitier. Sidney Poitier was born on this day, and thankfully he is still with us. My goodness me, a living legend. And I'm just so happy to do this particular episode because often I get to February and I forget about Sidney Poitier's birthday, when exactly it is. And I kept making a mental note to myself. I know it's sometime during this week. I know it's sometime during this week. I just got to keep looking at the date, remind myself when it is. I know it's in February. I know it's toward the end of February. Can I just 
find out, you know, let me just check the calendar. I know it's not this date, that date. And I said to myself, because I literally had a, another completely different topic that was going to be the focus on this Saturday. And I decided, you know, let me just look at the calendar again with Sydney and see if it's his birthday today. Because I know it's in the 20s, somewhere in February, the 20s, you know, whether it's 23rd, 25th, 26th. And there it was. Something told me to check today. And February 20th. Bingo. February 20th. 1927 was the date and the year that Sidney Poitier was born. He was born in Miami, Florida. He grew up there and was also someone of a background in the Bahamas as well, spent time there. And he fought his way through. He fought his way. F-O-U-G-H-T. Fought his way through to get to where he is. This is someone who was poor. He grew up in poverty. You know, he was, you know, he is actually... Someone who was born in Miami, lived in poverty, brought up in poverty. And literally, I think, uh, the so I mean, I kind of got that wrong a bit. I mean, I just remembering that. You know, he was a teenager and in that time, and this is in the 1940s, where he he became a teenager in the, in the uh, 1940s. So... You know, this was this was not some time where black people could just waltz around the United States or waltz around and do all these things that they wanted to do. These were times of, you had, you know, Jim Crow. You had all of these things that were going on in an institutionally racist system. That's not changed. The system of whiteness and white dominance, that's not changed. Right? The anti-blackness racism the anti-black racism that hasn't changed and the anti-black racists that those have not gone away and so in 1940 something or other Sidney Poitier got sent out to Miami he was born there but he had you know he had went back to the Bahamas or went to the Bahamas and his parents you know they had him and then you know my goodness 15 years old or 16 or whatever whatever it was in Miami to fend for himself and and he developed all of the survival skills that he had to develop and he talks about a lot of this in his autobiography The Measure of a Man one of I think at least two memoir slash autobiographies that he has written The Measure of a Man which I think came out in the 1990s you've got to read that and that by the way is my book recommendation for this episode let's just get that done right here right now the measure of a man it's a beautifully written and wonderfully rendered and observed account of a life 
well-traveled and experienced. And thank God he's still with us, you know? And I do not want to say anything lest I even approach Jinx territory. But I thank the good Lord. And you thank whomever you pray or do not pray to, whether you are an atheist, agnostic, or whomever, or whatever, that Sidney Poitier is still among us. My goodness, he's among us. And that is really good. With all the people who are no longer with us, I mean, I'm not even talking about 2020. I'm talking about this year we're sitting in, 2021. And these towering giants, these good people that we have lost in the film industry, you know? In the sports industry. And it's so good to know that Sydney is among us. You know, he turned 94 years of age today. 94 years of age. Sydney Poitier really did fend for himself. And scrapped and scraped, got jobs as a, a cook, I believe, and a shoe shiner, um, shoe shine man, and and he would get it. He got into New York, and he somehow basically smuggled himself to New York, if memory serves me correctly. Based on the, me- I mean, I haven't read that book, The Measure of a Man, for a long time. Haven't reread it. I've not reread it since I read it back in the late 80s or 90s, whenever it came out around that time. And I, so forgive me, I did not reread it or anything. As you know, I do a lot of unscripted stuff, which for better or worse, (laughs) it is what it should be or shall be. I don't want to say the other it is thing that we all know that we are tired of hearing. (laughs) But that also has truth in it. But I, there was a portion of that autobiography, The Measure of a Man by Sidney Poitier, where he talks about going up fire escapes, climbing on rooftops in New York City. I kid you not. He was in Harlem. He spent time there. He, he was doing these odd jobs as a dish cleaner, a cook, a shoeshine man, I think. All these things he was doing... While he was trying to pursue an acting career, he would uh, try to get these jobs on stage in these little stage plays off Broadway or some obscure place in the in the village in New York City, East Village, West Village. He was doing and, and this was all while he was trying to survive in this racist place called the United States of America. This young man was trying to survive and keep himself alive in a hostile society. He did everything he could. There was no Twitter back then. There was no cell phone back then. There was no Facebook or Instagram. Hey, look at me, Instagram, back then. 
There was none of the Snapchatting and the TikToking. TikTok, TikTok, TikTok. There was none of that going on. Sidney Poitier had to stay alive and thrive alive in an era and a time where for black people, you know the story and the story continues. The struggle continues, the luta continua. You know, this is, this was something that people have to understand. Sidney Poitier literally is, in some senses, the embodiment of a self-made man. Now, I know that there's no such true thing as a self-made anybody. Because, as you are going to hear shortly in the honorary Oscar acceptance speech he gave, that I played a portion of to start with. He gave that speech in 2002 on an historic night at the Academy as well, by the way. I'll get get into that as well. I mean... And I've lost my train of thought. (laughs) But Sydney just... Oh, here it is. The self-made man. You know, Sydney acknowledged in that speech that you're going to hear the full uh, version of. And it's about six minutes or so. He acknowledges that he didn't do this by himself. I mean, he did do a lot of this by himself. But of course, there were people who paved the way to make it possible For him to operate in a space where he could do things by himself in some instances. Do you see that? Do you understand what? Of course you understand what I'm saying. And he acknowledges that. You'll hear it in the speech I'll play for you in a few short minutes. He acknowledges these black actors who came before him. It's like what U2 says. Um... Sang in a song they did. I think it was for their album. How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. Quite a title for an album. And it was a pretty decent U2 album. Um, There are better ones that they've done. But I liked um, that one. And on one of the tracks. The track is called. Sometimes you can't make it on your own. And it's really true. You know. I think that all of us by the way. And it, it. Permit me to just say this for just 30 seconds. We all need help somewhere. Every single human being alive has never got somewhere by themselves. Even the people born with silver spoons in their mouths, right? They get their daddy or mummy to help them, right? They bail them out, you know, with billions of dollars. You know who I'm thinking of, you know? They give them hundreds of thousands of dollars at the age of five or six years old, four years old, you know? I mean, everybody on earth has had help. You literally would not be here if someone didn't help you get here. Uh, Your mother (laughs) and your father played a, a role, but it was your mother that brought you into the world, right? So to that degree, Sidney Poitier, you know, it, it, you know, he's self-made, but 
as he acknowledged, and I was moved. I want you to know this, dear listener. I was moved to no end this time around when I watched that 2002 acceptance speech at the Academy Awards that Sydney delivered. That stentorian tone or that kind of declarative confidence. It was just, wow. I was moved. The tears. The tears. And I looked at the faces on the video, which I will link to, by the way, so that you can see it as I saw it, and you're going to hear it in a moment or two or in a few minutes. But I'm going to link to the video so you can see the actual video. And I looked at the faces as the camera panned inside the Dolby Theatre or the Kodak Theatre as it was then known. I believe they were in the Kodak Theatre at that point. Um, They hadn't moved. Or at least that's what, anyway, that's what I think it was called. And... The faces that they showed you, shots of Jennifer Connolly and Samuel L. Jackson and Halle Berry sitting next to Eric Benet, no less, at the time. Oh, dear. Oh, God. Dear Lord. I am so sorry, Halle. I am so sorry. And people like Robert. I mean, you know who I'm talking about. Robert Altman, who was alive back then. And and all these other people, Nicole Kidman and and everybody, every Marie, I think Marissa Tomei may have been there, and John Voight, for God's sakes, John Voight, oh dear, standing next to Will Smith, and of course they were there for their Academy Award nominations for the film Ali, Muhammad Ali, another champion, another great all timer, the greatest athlete, sports person ever. At least I think so. I know you come on. You must agree with me on that. Anybody who wins their title three different times and one of them after being put in prison for years or at least having having his title stripped from him for three or four years and then winning it back and then doing what he did as an activist. Oh, come on. Oh, come on. And did it while he was fighting, while he was doing his career as a, as a, Oh, please. A conscientious... Anyway, you get the idea. But... So you had that kind of thing going on. Even that particular night. It was an an historic night. At an academy that doesn't generally recognize black people. You know? And if they do recognize black people, it ain't for any positive characters that they tend to play. I dare say, submit to the record for your consideration, dear listener, that of the close to, what, 30 black actors who have won, and I'm saying actor, I'm talking male, female, that's what I mean, actor. Whenever I say actor, I am not referring to men alone, okay? But of the roughly 30 black actors who have won Oscars, I dare say that at least 70% of those roles are roles where the character is being somewhat buffoonish, 
says the word N all the time, does some negative things all the time. I dare say 70% of those roles are not great roles. Halle Berry won that night for what I didn't think was a great role either, and not a positive one. But look, I don't get to make up the rules of the Academy. I would love to change it. I would love to be a part of that. And there's some really important people who are making changes, including Ava DuVernay, who I've mentioned a lot this week um, because she's part of the Academy's, I believe, Board of Governors, or she's, she's very much in, and she's an Academy member and, you know, an excellent filmmaker, of course. We know of Ava and the great things she does and, and what she does with Queen Sugar, which I talked about this week as well. But this is, this is the thing. That night in 2002 was a particularly special occasion because of there were these swirls of history happening. Denzel Washington had won his Oscar that night as well, and he made reference to, you know, I'm always chasing you, Sydney. You know, I, on the night that I win, they've given you an Oscar as well. <laughs> I'm always chasing you, sir. You know, and that was a beautiful speech as well. Um, I will not be playing that. I will be playing, however... Sidney Poitier's speech um, coming up, I promise. Um, but Sidney made a way out of no way. And yes, he had help from black actors that came before him. You know, from, from the, I mean, I can think of, I mean, although she was acting at the time, he was as well. Dorothy Dandridge was a contemporary uh, and started perhaps a little bit earlier than he. Um, Josephine Baker, a performer, acted, performer, Dancer, musician, singer, songwriter, you know, I can go on forever about Josephine Baker, uh, you know, who paved the way, you know, the filmmaker Oscar Michaud, who paved the way, um, and other and other people in the industry, black actors, black people um, who weren't in the industry of Hollywood, but certainly were known. Paul Robeson. I mean, my goodness me. Paul Robeson was a huge influence. You've got to look at Paul Robeson. You can't really talk about the career of Sidney Poitier without mentioning Paul Robeson. I dare say you'd be derelict in your duty not to recognize that Paul Robeson was a hugely influential person on black performers, particularly on a Sidney Poitier. Paul Robeson was a true Renaissance man as well. I mean, Paul Robeson, as you know, well, you may not know this, was an actor, activist, athlete, musician. And I'm sure there were a lot of other things that uh, I've not mentioned that he also did. I mean, he was just incredible. And he just doesn't get celebrated because of the politics and, oh, he's a communist and we've got to get rid of him and... You know, that kind of uh, 1950s House on American Committee type red scare. Oh, my God. You know. But Sidney Poitier must, and he didn't, I don't think he mentioned it, but Paul Robeson certainly had an imprint on him. Certainly did. And he mentioned people that he had direct, that directly influenced and helped him along the way. And you'll hear that. Coming up, I promise, I promise, I'm teasing this through, but I promise you're going to get to hear that. But this is, this was a night of nights. And when I tell you that I had tears in my eyes, watching what you're going to get to listen to in a few minutes, 
and what you can get to watch when I link the link of the video of this speech to the liner notes of this episode. I wouldn't kid you about that. I wouldn't kid you about that. It was a moving experience. And what's so funny or interesting, dear listener, is that when I saw the speech as it happened live, live, 2002, when it happened that year, I honestly didn't feel, I wasn't moved. I think it was just a lot was happening that night and the icing on top of the proverbial cake or the cherry on top of that icing was Sidney Poitier's honorary Oscar acceptance speech. And I had known beforehand that he was going to be honored because the Academy tells you this. But the speech itself, oh man. That was the highlight of the night. And of course, that night also, back in 2002, I believe it was March, March the 7th, 2002, or somewhere around there. And that night, of course, as I said before, Halle Berry, Halle Berry won for Monsters Ball, Best Actress, the first black woman. Can you believe that? The first black woman, although I'm not shocked given the racism of the Academy, the racists in the Academy, the first black woman ever to win Best Actress. 2002. The Academy's been giving out these awards since 1927. That is almost 100 years ago. In fact, 1927, as I said earlier, is the very year that Sidney Poitier was born. 1927. He won his Oscar for Lilies of the Field in 1964. At that time, he would have been just 37 years old. So that was the first black man to win Best Actor because that's gendered in the Academy. And I really wish they would stop doing that, but that's what they're doing, right? Still, Best Actor, Best Actress, you know. So... That's what we saw. Sidney Poitier, first black man to win Best Actor, 1964. 37 years after the Academy first started giving out Oscars. You know what's interesting, again, is that there were so many great black performances before Sidney's. And Sidney won for a film that, quite frankly, I don't know about you, but I did not care for. And the role he played was not one I really appreciated. Happy for his success personally, of course. But the role that he played, uh, survey says no on that one for yours truly. But I'm telling you, it's what Cindy didn't win for. And like I've said, and I played that little bit from the NAACP Image Awards, I've said this on Twitter, at the popcorn, R-E-E-L, that black award shows must be honored and centered more because as the academy continues to plot along and there are again some good people in the academy who are changing some of that slowly but surely in terms of the diversity and the inclusion and the kinds of winners you're getting look at what happened last year with with um parasite which made history a glorious moment in in film here in the united states that a 
film from Korea wins. You know, I was delighted with that. Delighted that Parasite won and took home the major awards. And you had a best director who was Asian. You know, never happened. I mean, that's happened one other time with Ang Lee. Um, you know, and all the other awards it won. Oh, best picture, come on. The only film not in the English language, as they say. Cinema is a global language. I, I really don't like, oh, foreign language film. You know, no, no, no. Film is a global language. You don't need the, oh, it's got to be a foreign language film. No, film and cinema are international. They are global. And so it really pleased me. I'm still holding on to that moment from a year ago. <laughs> I'm still holding in this in the film realm. I mean, there's lots of other great moments, but in the film realm, I am still holding on to that moment from a year ago, February the ninth, two thousand and twenty, as this pandemic was wreaking havoc in China, by the way, and then we we were just beginning to get some of a sense of, oh, there's one or two or six cases. And that's, where the, that's where we were a year and 11 days ago. Oh, gosh, putting it like that seems really kind of, I don't know what, je ne sais quoi. But we were just beginning to ambit ourselves. We were in this ambit of trying, trying to orient our minds to, oh, there's a pinprick here, a pinprick there, a pinprick everywhere kind of mentality because this virus was con was slowly making the rounds. Anyway, I do not want to go down that road on this episode. But the point I'm making here is that all this history of the Academy and Sidney Poitier was the first black man to win Best Actor. You had Hattie McDaniel being the first black person to win an Oscar back in 39 or 40, 1939 or 40. So that's 13 or so years after the Academy started bringing, giving out awards. I mean, I could pretty much name every single black person to have won an acting award. Now, there are, of course, black people behind the camera who have won. But, you know, I'm trying to think of, by the way, there, there has never been a black director winning Best Director at the Oscars. Never. Never. It's never happened. Never happened. There's never been a black woman nominated for Best Director. It's never happened. With all the great black women directing, it's never happened. Think about the black women who've directed. There's an abundance of them. Uzan Palsy, Julie Dash, Ava DuVernay, Casey Lemons, Gina Prince Bythewood, Dee Rees. Think about black women who've directed and there's so many others I just named what five or six five or six there's so many others 
I mean, just look at Queen and Slim from 2019. I can't believe that was 2019, that movie, not 2020, 2019. A black woman directed that film. A black woman directed the film that Alfred Wood has starred in that year as well. Clemency. Oh, my goodness. So you get the idea. Sidney Poitier gave us this incredible speech. And it's going to be coming up in a few moments, I promise you. Let me understand this. You two came here to question me. Your, your attitudes, Mr. Endicott, your points of view are a matter of record. Some people, well, let us say the people who work for Mr. Colbert might reasonably regard you as the person least likely to mourn his passing. We were just trying to clarify some of the evidence. Was Mr. Colbert ever in this greenhouse, say, last night about midnight? <laughs> the slap heard round the world. That slap that you just heard, that's what that was. In fact, it was two slaps. But it, that second slap was the slap that Sidney Poitier administered to a white character in one of the most memorable and iconic scenes in American film. And that's no exaggeration. From In the Heat of the Night, directed by Norman Jewison. The film was released in 1967, and it is often looked at as the most signature Sidney Poitier film. In a great many ways, I would agree with that. But I also think that it's not his best performance. I think it's an excellent performance by Poitier, who, by the way, was not nominated for that by the Academy. And I drifted off and did not finish my thought about black award shows. Black award shows, and forgive me, because I said this in the previous segment, but did not follow up on it. Black award shows must be centered, must be centered. And the, the black award shows that do film tributes and give out film awards. And we've got a number of them now. The Black Reel Awards with my good friend Tim Gordon, um, who I am looking to have on this podcast coming up in the next few weeks. We'll be talking, um, I'm sure, about film and, and, and that and what we need to be doing um, because it's really important. Black film awards must be given the kind of same kinds of appraisal that the Academy Awards, say, you know, the white, if you will, um, organizations awards do, right? The so-called white film awards, which, which they've been for 93, 94 years. I mean, come on. I mean, come on now. 90% of the 
uh, 93% of the people um, who've been awarded them are white. And, you know, the Academy still, as recently as a few years ago, had a 94% white makeup. But what I'm saying here is there's that black award shows have to be lifted up and exalted. The NAAC image, NAA image award, NAACP image awards, uh, black real awards, black filmmaker, uh, the black film awards, all of these and so many others, right? All of these shows awards have got to be elevated and, and we have to elevate them, especially black people who watch them and black people in the press, and in the film press, have to do that. You know, there's only so much these awards organizations can do themselves. I mean, you no, know, you know, I say what I just said, and I know I'm meandering again, so please excuse me, and I'm going to get back to In the Heat of the Night. I have not forgotten. But, you know, nobody thinks a thing about the fact that I might say something like I just said about how black people and people have to start exalting black award shows, film award shows. And people will go, "Ooh, that's ooh, you're being a racist. Uh, I don't think so. No, I am not. Not in a racist society and not in an oppressive anti-black racist society. Am I as a black person being racist? Uh, No. Definitely not. But my more immediate point than even that is that I will say, well, we have to elevate black award shows, black film award shows. And some people listening to that will get upset, but would think nothing at all of elevating the Oscars as they do. How many tweets have you seen about the Oscars? They come and they go, not just annually, but every single day. And that's how it goes. No one thinks, a se- no one blinks an eye at that. Nobody blinks an eye. People elevate the Oscars all the time. And don't tell me it's because, well, they've been around since 1927. No, 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 no. It's about the whiteness of it, Right. And you associate that with prestige. And you associate that with the creme de la creme. And everybody, including yours truly, talks about the Oscars. We're talking about the Oscars five months before they happen. Two months before. A month before the nominations even come. I mean, next month, I told you, March 15th, you're going to be up early in the morning. And you're going to be watching those nominations. If you're a film person, you're definitely going to be watching. If you are a press person in film, you are going to be all over that television or online place. You know that. I know that. So there's nothing, you know, when I say that, there should not be an issue amongst anybody. Because it's automatic like the Pointer Sisters. No way to control it. It's totally automatic. <laughs> oh, gosh. It's or Go listen to Automatic by the Pointer Sisters. Look what you've done to me. I mean, this, 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 is, this is what it is. It's an automatic for people to sit there and champion the Oscars. And all I am saying, dear listener, is that we have to do the same for black 
Film Awards groups and Black Film Awards shows. I played that clip of Sidney Poitier at the NAACP Image Awards for a reason. And it wasn't just to honor and celebrate the birthday man, Sidney Poitier, Sir Sidney, who got a knighthood um, from the Bahamas, from, from the Bahamas, I believe. To serve with love indeed. But that scene in In the Heat of the Night is such an iconic scene. It means so much because of the race dynamic, if you will, that word race, which of course is a social construction. That's one thing I didn't mention last week in the uh, discussion I did on Anita speaking truth to power. But the point is, is that this is real though, construction or not, the real world consequences are there. And so the fact that it's a social uh, social construct is kind of cold comfort for the realities of what institutions do and what systems do to black people, oppressive ones that are anti-black and racist and anti-black racist. And so there you go. But that scene that you just heard where Sidney Poitier's character, Virgil Tibbs, they call me Mr. Tibbs, gets slapped by the white character, white male character, Mr. Endicott or whatever his name is. And then Sidney's Virgil Tibbs responds by slapping the taste out of his mouth. An almighty slap. I mean, Sidney responded by slapping the almighty taste out of the white character's mouth. I mean, you can see the spittle and the saliva and the spit flying out of his mouth. <laughs> that white guy didn't know what hit his ass. <laughs> I mean, that was a slap for 400 years. I mean, if we, if we, if we really want to be honest, <laughs> 400 year slap in two, in, in one, in point two seconds. In 1967. Come on now. Come on now. 1967. What was happening? What had been happening? There were uprisings all over this joint called the United States of America. I'm not kidding. 65, 66, 67 Detroit. 65 and 66 Watts in Southern California. I mean, this is all. It's not just those two cities. It's all over Chicago, Shat Town. And then we, it's a year. This is 67. This is now a year before what happened at the convention in Chicago, the Democratic National Convention. This slap was Titanic. And I'm not talking about the HMS Titanic that sunk. I'm not talking about that one from 1912. I'm not talking about that one. I'm talking about this slap that was a generational slap to white America. That's how I read that moment. I am going to link to that as well in the line of notes so that you can see and feel that slap. It was truly, I, you know, I mean, not to overplay it, it was a revolutionary part of that film. They call me Mr. Tibbs. I mean, come on. And there was even a film done later on, about three or four years after In the Heat of the Night, with the same title, with Sidney playing the title role. And I wouldn't call it a sequel as such to In the Heat of the Night, but my goodness, it's a crime, isn't it, that Sidney Poitier was not nominated for In the Heat of the Night? He wasn't even nominated. 
Oh, dear. But look, I think that the film that Sidney Poitier should really be um, given much more credit for is A Raisin in the Sun. That's the movie where he acted his behind off. I mean, there was No Way Out in 1950, and there was um, Blackboard Jungle, I believe, in 55 or 57 or 58. But there was nothing, nothing like A Raisin in the Sun. Sidney Poitier has not given a better performance. I think that's the best work he's ever done. And then In the Heat of the Night is right behind it. A Raisin in the Sun was just unreal. I believe it was directed by uh, Daniel uh, Petrie. I always get mixed up if it's Daniel Mann or David Petrie or Daniel Petrie. Um, A Raisin in the Sun. Based on Lorraine Hansberry's great play. But, you know, you got to watch A Raisin in the Sun. That performance by Sidney Poitier was, I think, one of the greatest performances ever. And yet it hardly ever gets talked about. I wonder why. If I have to hear another word about Marlon Brando, I will absolutely. No disrespecting him, but yes, in the heat of the... I mean, on the waterfront was his um, creme de la creme work. But I think that Marlon Brando, as great an actor as he was, gets really over-talked. He gets so talked up. And Sidney Poitier rarely gets talked up. To the degree that Marlon Brando does. I wonder why. But this is the thing. That performance in A, in a Raisin in the Sun is unforgettable. Unforgettable. Really unforgettable. It's, it's staggering. And then In the Heat of the Night, of course, was just, well, come on now. Then, of course, To Serve of Love came out in 67. So did uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Films that I was not big a big fan of. I mean, To Serve of Love was not bad. And I thought Poitier was very good in that. But in some ways, he was kind of a smaller side character in that film. Strangely enough. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, of course, well... That film, to me, was less about Sidney Poitier than it was about a system of Hollywood that tried to make him this magical Negro figure, you know? Oh, my goodness, he's a PhD, or he's a lawyer, or he's an MBA, or he's this, 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 and this. It goes back to this black excellence thing, that black excellence that I've been talking about and ruminating on throughout this week of episodes that you can listen back to if you are so inclined, dear listener. But there is this, there's a genesis of something that's going on here with Sidney Poitier in his film work, in the, in the things he did while off screen. Incredible things he's, he, he did and has done. And he's still, you know, he's still here with us, thank goodness. And there are all these other movies for the love of Ivy. For love of Ivy and uh, Patch of Blue, a touch of a patch of blue. Uh, you know, all these other films that he ended up doing, um, Uptown Saturday Night and Let's Do It Again. He was a director, of course. He's been a director. He did Ghost Dad, which was forgettable. He directed that in the 80s with, goodness gracious me, the person who will not be uh, mentioned again on this podcast. His initials are B.C. in the title role of Ghost Dad. And so Sidney Poitier directed that, and that was 
an abject fail. Well, everybody has their moment, right? But Sidney Poitier also um, did Shoot to Kill in the 80s, where he was really good. Tom Berenger was also in that film, and Sidney Poitier stole that movie. I mean, not stole it. He dominated. He was so good in that. Shoot to Kill was the name of the movie. That's a movie that you should watch. If you're a little bit younger and you don't want to go back to A Raisin in the Sun, you really should, though. Or you don't want to go back to In the Heat of the Night or No Way Out, you really should, though. You really will want to watch Shoot to Kill from 1988 or 87, thereabouts. You've got to watch that movie. Then, about 10 years after that, Poitier acted in the film in a film called The Jackal, where he was playing alongside Bruce Willis and Richard Gere. It was a re- I think I, I may still have that somewhere. The Jackal. I don't think it was a great movie, but I thought the performances were good, particularly Sidney Poitier, playing, I believe, an FBI director or, or, or detective or something. And that's the same thing he played. <laughs> that's the same thing he played also um, in Shoot to Kill, I think. And I think he played, well, he played a, a, a police officer from uh, Philadelphia in In the Heat of the Night. But there are these other roles that Sidney did. He was in a film called Little Nikita with River Phoenix. I mean, Sidney Poitier continued to act. He's retired now. Sidney Poitier. Um, Oh, I know, I know. It's time for you to to listen to this... um, to listen to this speech that Sidney gave in 2002 before the Academy Awards, at the Academy Awards in 2002, I believe it was March 7th of that year, here it is now for the next six minutes and change. The acceptance speech of Sidney Poitier for the Academy's Honorary Lifetime Achievement Award. The honorary, I guess it's, it's a lifetime achievement. I don't know if it's honorary Oscar, but it was his lifetime achievement Oscar. Listen to this. I arrived in Hollywood at the age of 22 in a time different than today's. A time in which the odds against my standing here tonight 53 years later would not have fallen in my favor. 
Back then, no route had been established for where I was hoping to go. No pathway left in evidence for me to trace. No custom for me to follow. Yet here I am this evening at the end of a journey that in 1949 would have been considered almost impossible and in fact might never have been set in motion were there not an untold number of courageous, unselfish choices made by a handful of visionary American filmmakers, directors, writers, and producers each with a strong sense of citizenship responsibility to the times in which they lived, each unafraid to permit their art to reflect their views and values, ethical and moral, and moreover, acknowledge them as their own. They knew the odds that stood against them and their efforts were overwhelming and likely could have proven too high to overcome. Still, those filmmakers persevered, speaking through their art to the best in all of us, and I benefited from their effort. The industry benefited from their effort. America benefited from their effort. And in ways large and small, the world has also benefited from their effort. Therefore, with respect, I share this great honor with the late Joe Mankiewicz, the late Richard Brooks, the late Ralph Nelson, the late Daryl Zanuck, the late Stanley Kramer, the Mirish brothers, especially Walter, whose friendship lies at the very heart of this moment. Guy Green, Norman Jewison, and all others who have had a hand in altering the odds for me and for others. Without them, this most memorable moment would not have come to pass, and the many excellent young actors who have followed in admirable fashion might not have come, as they have, to enrich the tradition of American filmmaking as they have. I accept this award in memory of all the African-American actors and actresses who went before me in the difficult years, on whose shoulders I was privileged to stand to see where I might go. My love.
my love and my thanks to my wonderful, wonderful wife, my children, my grandchildren, my agent and friend, Martin Baum, and finally, finally to those audience members around the world who have placed their trust in my judgment as an actor and filmmaker, I thank each of you for your support through the years. Thank you. One of the terrific speeches in the history of the Academy. I think that's got to be in the top five or six. And when you have someone as selfless as Sidney Poitier is, to reel off that many names in less than, what, six and a half minutes or so. I mean, that shows you the measure of a man, doesn't it? The measure of a, of a person who is generous, who is open to sharing a moment. You know, it's, it's interesting. All the, a lot of things are interesting, but it, all of these moments, when you watch the Academy Awards on television and you see some of these actors winning these Oscars and they give the most self-indulgent, selfish, inward-looking speeches and they get up there and rabbit on about someone's aunt or someone's uncle or grandfather or the time that so-and-so down the street did this and da-da-da-da-da-da, me, 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 and then turn inward and talk all about themselves but never pay tribute to, I mean, yes, okay, an aunt or, or, or an uncle. I, or, I get it, but the speeches don't have anything in them that you hold on to is what I'm really trying to get at. The amount of times that you have watched the Academy Awards and you've seen a speech or heard a speech, you've witnessed a speech, a witnessed someone making a speech who absolutely has nothing at all to say. Nothing. They might be talking for two minutes if they've been fortunate enough not to be played off the stage, fortunate enough not to have the microphone get cut. And they've been talking two, three minutes and not a single thing has come out of their mouth. You know what I mean. Talking loud and saying nothing. Nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing. And that's what happens. And I'd say that happens around 65% of the time. The other 35% of the time, there are people who say some really meaningful things. You come away from that speech and you go... Yeah, wow, yeah, I, that resonated with me. And yeah, this person cares about the world, not just about themselves winning a trophy. That there's more to the world than that. Yes, it's a special moment. It's, a, it's the high point of many people's careers because what it does, it means that they get more business in the industry. And it's really an award that is an award that means you get more work in the industry. It's a reward for more business. And more work for you in the industry. That's what the Oscars are. Seriously, that's what the Oscars are. And that's why, and there's also a lot of politics involved and that's part of it too. And I'll never forget that uh, Academy um, president. I will not name him here, but I think you may know who he is. Who once told me, point blank, to my face in pre-COVID times, 
down in Los Angeles, California, that the Oscars were never political. Oh, no. Our choices are not based on any politics. The Academy Awards are not political. <laughs> Why don't you ask Denzel Washington that for Malcolm X? <laughs> Why don't you ask Paul Newman that? <laughs> or Patricia Neal? Or, I mean, come on. Or why don't you ask Angela Bassett that? <laughs> why don't you Why don't you come tell them about your story about the Oscars not being political? Or Sissy Spacek? Or any, any number of people I can reel off to you. But uh, let me tell you, that speech that night by Sydney really meant something. That speech you just heard meant something. It meant something to me, which is why some almost 20 years after that speech, I actually had tears in my eyes. Maybe you had tears in your eyes on the night. I guess mine were delayed tears from 19 years ago. Delayed. They're delayed reactions. We all have them to events in our lives. Some of them traumatic, some of them not. But sometimes there's this delayed reaction. And I did feel moved that night, as I said, when Sydney gave the speech you just heard. But watching it again, hearing it again. Wow. These moments we have to bottle. We have to celebrate people when they are here and celebrate them in abundance. And I'm not talking about idol worship and I'm not talking about anything like that, idolatry, none of that. I'm talking about truly appreciating someone when they are here and now. Because when they leave the stage, we have to honor our ancestors. But we also have to honor the people who are here with us now. We have to. And I'm so thankful that Sydney's here. He's enjoying his 94th birthday. I'm going to leave you now with... Almost leave you, because I'll come back with a final goodbye. But I want to, for this episode, but I want to play you something from 2000 and whenever it was. That it's around 2009 or 2014 or whatever it was. But this was an interview that Sidney Poitier gave, in, and I'll link to this also. But this was part of an interview he gave. And I want you to just listen to some of what Sidney says here. If we cannot articulate what is behind this bunch of words, which would be maybe just one paragraph. Behind it may be one point of view, or it may be a combination of points of views. The audience hearing these would expect to see them exemplified in the behavior of the actor. And they taught me how to do that.
it was a it was a wonderful experience for me because it was produced and directed by a great filmmaker named Stanley Kramer, and I had a chance to work with Tony Curtis, and we got along wonderfully well. The 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 only thing that is really outstanding is that it was a, a production of of Stanley Kramer. It was one of Hollywood's most liberal, most uh, courageous uh, men in the in the business, particularly doing a delicate time in America. Uh, working for him was pleasure. Was a was a, a total pleasure. I love the role. It was, uh, it was pretty much how I am, and what it meant to me to receive the award for it. Uh, I think it meant a great deal to me. It was the first time for an African American. Um, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed the experience because what he was doing, the character, mind you, what he was doing was exhibiting a vast sense of of himself and the wonders of being alive and the wonders of being a human being and the responsibilities of a human being and here he is vortexing with some of the most lovable characters it it was and for that I got an, an award I embraced the award uh, uh, it was it was wonderful. Th that movie, the, the man who wanted so badly to make that movie did in fact direct it. I've, I've, I've made movies for him in, in my career uh, several times, three times as a matter of fact. Ralph Nelson was a very, very, very humane person. He hired me for three fantastic roles. I will always be indebted to Ralph Nelson because he was, he was a real humanitarian, this guy. The producers were all whites. Uh, I was the one of the principal players in the in the, the movie i know what my values were my values are not disconnected from the values some of the values of the black community african american community so i go in front of a camera with a responsibility to be at least respectful of certain values. For this guy, who was a very wealthy, very well-positioned person in this community in, in the South, and I am a, de a detective out of Philadelphia who is, uh, I'm not in the South, I'm on my way home after having visited my, mo my mother. Anyway, he slaps me for it. And when I read the script, I said to uh, the producers and the, the director, I said, 
actually the producers first, who happens to be a very close friend of mine. Walter Mirisch. Yeah. Uh, I said, Walter, I can't play this. The scene required me to stand there. This guy walks over to me and he slaps me in the face. And I look at him fiercely and walk away. And I said to Walter, you, I said, you can't do that. I said, let me tell you a little bit about America and the texture of American culture as it stands. I said, that is dumb. It is not very bright. I said, we're in the 60s. This is 1968 or seven. You can't do that. I said, the black community will look at that and say, that is egregious. It's, you can't do that. Because the human responses that would be natural in that circumstances we are suppressing them to serve values of greed on the part of Hollywood, acquiescence on the part of people uh, culturally who would accept that as the proper approach. I said, you can't do it. I said, you certainly won't do it with me. And I got, I, you know, I talked to him about it. I said, therefore, if you want me to do this, not only will I not do it, but I will insist that I respond to this man precisely as a human being would ordinarily respond to this man. And he pops me and I'll pop him right back. And I said, if you want me to play it, you will put that in writing. And in writing, you will also say that if this picture plays the South, that that scene is never, ever removed. And Walter being the kind of guy that he was, he said, yeah, he says, I, I, I promise you that and I'll give it to you in writing. I ultimately didn't take it in writing. I just took a handshake because he's the kind of a guy, his handshake and his signature is one and the same. And um, that made the movie. Without it, the movie would not have done as well as it did. My birth was quite unusual in that uh, I was premature and uh, I wasn't expected to live. I was delivered by a midwife in Miami, Florida in the African-American section uh, of that city, and uh, there were no available hospitals for for people of uh, African descent, and so uh, certainly my mother knew didn't know of one, and uh, so I was born in a small house that was not ours. It was a house that my parents would live in because my parents were not Americans. My parents were Bahamians, which is a group of islands off the coast of Florida 
are many, many, many islands. They, they run into the hundreds. Some of them are just that big, but, but many of them were large enough for, for uh, populations to, to gather. And <clears throat> my parents were tomato farmers. They farmed tomatoes and they sold their tomatoes in Miami, Florida. They went two, sometimes three times per year. They would harvest and uh, they, they had to harvest at a given time because there were no motorboats that would take their stuff across, so they had to go by sailboat. So they, 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 re they reaped the harvest prematurely. They had to in order for it to ripen on the way so that when they got to Florida, they would have the fruit would be ready for, for sale. And uh, <clears throat> on one such trip, my mother was pregnant by some six, seven months. They had no expectations that I would be born in, in Florida. Um, but uh, how water broke, that's a phrase, I guess, that you would understand. The water broke, meaning that, of course, something happened in her internal structure that the baby was going to come, whether it was nine months or not. So it was, uh, so it was that I, I was born in Florida uh, uh, unexpectedly. And I, they had to keep me there uh, for some three months because I was so uh, underprepared for birth that uh, it took three months for me to uh, hit a point at which they could take me on a sailboat, which would take several days, back to the Bahamas and their, their tomato field. But during the period when I was really, really close to not being here. Uh, everyone gave up on me. The, 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 uh, the midwife gave up on me. My father also gave up on me because they had had many children. I was the last of the lot. And my dad felt that having experienced births uh, before in, in his family, he had no confidence in my surviving because what appeared to him was that this child was too fragile to, to survive. And uh, my mother had a different point of view. My mother would not accept that. She did not accept it. As a matter of fact, the evening I was born, the very next morning, everyone present, that meaning the local people who were friendly with my parents and people who were not, uh, they saw the child, me, and they said, no, no chance. My mother had a different point of view. He left the house uh, the following morning and he went for a stroll. And that stroll ended up at the local undertaker's parlor in a discussion centered around preparations for my burial. And uh, he came back to the house with this little shoebox. It was, in fact, a shoebox. And he came into the house with it. And my mother, who was naturally prone in bed, she was so outraged that she got up and she dressed herself against their, the uh, uh, 
uh, everyone gathered there. And she left the house. She went out into the world, I suppose, figuratively speaking. And she stayed for support because she had, she did not want to give up on me. And she was determined not to. Anyway, long story short, she went out and she spent the whole day, I suppose, going to local churches and going to various, wherever she could find, uh, she would find help, she would go, and she did. But the day ended and there was nothing. So she's on her way home. And she decided to stop in and visit a soothsayer. You know what they are. They are fortune tellers in a peculiar sort of way. And uh, she stopped in and she said to this lady who was there, she said that uh, I just gave birth to a son. And, uh, and she explained what the circumstances were and stuff like that. And she said, I want you to tell me about my son. And they sat down. And this lady began, first she went into, I hate to say it, but this was a, a, the way I get the story. She went into a kind, she closed her eyes. And the soothsayer closed her eyes. And she began to talk in strange, in a strange language, no language at all, I guess was gibberish to anyone listening. Uh, but my mother was hearing her. And then it, suddenly the soothsayer's eyes flew open and she looked at my mother and she said, don't worry about your son. He will survive. And he will not be a sickly child. You must not worry about that child. My mother came back to the house, cost her 50 cents. In those days, that was a lot of bucks. She went back to the house and she told my dad to remove the shoebox from the house. There'll be no need for it, she said. Well, that was Sidney Poitier, I believe in 2014. Wow, extraordinary, extraordinary. Uh, and I wanted to play that. Um, there were a few pauses because um, there were titles being played. And I'm going to link to this. It's actually nearly two hours long. Um, but those are some excerpts. That last excerpt, and I told you, I began this by telling you about the survivor that Sidney is and, and, and that he survived, he thrived, he survived. He was looking for all these things. He was searching. He was to stay alive and, and to thrive and be a success and pursue his dreams and everything. And I've talked about that on this podcast the last few days about trying to pursue your goals and the things you have to do and the steps that you should take if you're not taking them that I think will be helpful. 
And again, as I said earlier, Sidney Poitier did this in a time where it was not something that you'd expect black people to thrive in. But we have always thrived, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the adversity. We have. And Sydney has as well. And so the last few minutes you've heard were tremendously potent and fascinating and remarkable. That last segment you just heard where he talks about the circumstances around his being premature and how his father gave up on him. You know, again, I keep saying this and I've said this on other episodes. Sometimes the biggest situation that happens is the sometimes that uh, is true. Let me just say it this way is that parents can be the biggest killers of a child's dreams. That is really true. And a parent giving up on their child before that child is even given a chance. And if it wasn't for his mother, Sidney Poitier wouldn't be celebrating his 94th birthday today. Earlier in those clips you heard, um, Sidney talk about the slap. Mr. Poitier talk about the slap. And that's what I talked about earlier. Um, And I had not heard this bit of audio you've just heard for the last few minutes until literally, literally when I've just played it. Now, this is the first time I'm hearing it. It was completely on the fly. Again, I tell you, I do do this without a script. And I am not kidding you when I say that. So it's interesting. I just happened to catch the bit of audio where he talks about the slap from In the Heat of the Night. And I didn't know that story. That originally that was not in there. I was not aware of that. I don't know if you were. That originally Sidney slapping the white character, the white actor, was not in the script. And as Sidney said, that's a grotesque offense to human beings in general, let alone black people, black human beings. You know, that's a that's an insult. What? We're not going to slap you back. The slap heard around the world is not going to be heard. (laughs) Come on. But that was really insightful. And I hope you found it to be. He also talked about the Defiant Ones with Tony Curtis, which I didn't, you know, I didn't mention the Defiant Ones. Another movie. Uh, Actually, that was from 1956 or 57 or 58. The Defiant Ones. um, Which is quite a movie. This is a movie that James Baldwin, by the way, dissects in I Am Not Your Negro, the documentary you've got to watch on Netflix now. You've got to watch it, how he dissects. And by the way, he also did this in his book, The Devil Finds Work, did James Baldwin, which is a great film critics chronicle. I mean, James Baldwin was a film critic and he, you know, that doesn't get told often enough. He he also, he was a film critic. He was someone who weaved film knowledge. He was very adept at it and and he wrote a whole book about all these films that he'd seen and watched and critiqued one of them was the, the defiant ones and that critique gets reprised in I Am Not Your Negro but Sidney Poitier talks about the defiant ones talks about um, some of the people he paid, paid homage to some of these white directors who he talked about Ralph Nelson and white producers like Walter Mirisch 
Norman Jewison had directed in the heat of the night. Um, so he credits them as well as he did in the speech you heard at the Academy. But also, one thing that I should mention that hasn't been mentioned is that, and I did mention it briefly, Sidney Poitier is an activist, a political activist. He was at the March on Washington. I believe he even spoke at the March on Washington as well. Ruby D spoke at the March on Washington. 1963. August of that year. August the 28th, 1963. March on Washington. And I believe Sidney Poitier spoke at that march. Uh, Harry Belafonte did. Harry Belafonte and Sidney Poitier are still friends to this day. And thank God they're both here. They're still friends to this day. And by the way, Harry Belafonte's birthday is coming up in about another month or so. About another five weeks. Exactly another five weeks from now. Uh, March the 27th, I believe it is. And so, Sidney Poitier, you know, he was an activist. He is still an activist. But he did a lot of that activist work in the 1950s and 60s around civil rights, human rights. So this is a statesman we are celebrating here and celebrating a statesman's birthday today. Sidney Poitier is alive and well and has a family, six daughters. He's married to Joanne Shimkus, who he's been married to for many a year now, many years. And I'm not sure exactly where they're living, whether it's here in California, it might be Southern California, or it may be somewhere else. I don't really know. But it's so good to have Sidney Poitier here with us. Oh, my goodness. You know, such an such a statesman. That's the word. Statesman, activist, human. A generous and warm soul. And you heard him also talk in that segment about Ladies of the Field being the character he played there, being who he really is. And man, I'm so happy Sydney's with us. All I can say to you, sir, with love, is happy birthday Sir Sydney Poitier. Be well and enjoy this very special day. You, sir, are the true measure of a man. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. You're tired, ain't you, baby? You oh so tired of everything. Me, the boy, the way we live in this beat up hole, everything, moaning and groaning all the time, but you wouldn't do nothing to help, would you? I mean, you couldn't be on my side that long for nothing. Walter, Good. please, leave me alone. Man needs a woman to back him up. Here. Walter. Mama would listen to you, and you know she listens to you more than you do me and Benny. She thinks more of you. Look, all you got to do is sit down with her one morning when you're having your coffee and talking about things like you do. Just say kind of easy like that you've been thinking about this little deal Walter he's so interested in about the store and all. Just keep sipping away at your coffee like what you're saying ain't that important to you. Before you know it, she's listening good and asking you questions. Then when I come home, I fill in the details. Please, leave me alone. This ain't a fly-by-night operation. I mean, we got this thing figured out, me, Willie and Bobo. Bobo? Yeah. 
Look, we figured the initial investment on the place to be about $30,000. That's $10,000 a piece. Now, of course, we got to spread around a few hundred so as not to spend your life waiting for them clowns to let your license get approved. You mean graft? Don't call it that. Goes to show you how much women know about the world. Baby, don't nothing happen for you in this world unless somebody gets paid off. Walter, leave me alone. Eat your eggs. You're going to be cold. See? The man say to his woman, I got me a dream. She says, eat your eggs. They're getting cold.